we have been in a series that has been somewhat unusual, at least for me, but I have enjoyed it immensely and I've gotten good feedback about it, where I have taken a book or more at a time from the Old Testament history. We took Genesis and then Exodus and Leviticus and a sermon on each one. And the idea was to give us the overview of redemptive history. So that as we read through the Old Testament scriptures, that we will say, oh yes, now I remember how this fits into that and how they connect together. You will also recall that in each of the sermons, what we did was we saw how that Old Testament book prepared us for the New Testament and how it was anticipating the New Testament. And then as we finished last week uh, in the, the end of Old Testament history, I thought, well, we should finish the story uh, with the New Testament. And so we're going to be taking a couple more weeks to round out this series, looking at the Gospels and the Gospel story today, and then, Lord willing, next week looking at the book of Acts. And as you know, those who have been here, I read a representative portion, and then we jump around a bit in the text so that we can get a grasp, an overall grasp of the message of this section. So I'm going to read Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, the first 15 verses, Mark chapter 1, 15, and it's on page 926 in the Bibles that are available to you. Hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea Judea, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. As you're probably aware, words come into vogue and become kind of faddish in different generations. Words become popular and then they kind of fade away and another word takes its place. Well, when I come back to the States, as we did a couple of years ago, whenever I'd come back to the States, I'd hear people using words that I didn't hear them using in the past, or maybe common words, but using them in a different way, and sometimes, at least historically, an incorrect way. It seems like every affirmation now, particularly maybe among young people, has to begin with the word, so. 
I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but so, that begins every sentence. I also hear people using the adverb literally in a non-literal way, just to add emphasis. Uh, I heard somebody say, that literally blew my socks off. And I observed, and he was still wearing his stockings, and so I was sort of confused about what this literalness meant about his socks. Uh, I also uh, hear people receiving rewards or positions and then immediately insulting the giver of the reward or the position. They get up and they say, I'm humbled to receive this reward, which is to say, I'm much greater than this, and this is lowering me to receive this reward or this position. Where they should say, I'm honored, that is, this reward lifts me up. But I hear them saying, I'm humbled, which seems like an insult to the person who's actually honoring them or trying to. Among Christians, not surprisingly, I hear the word gospel. Now, that's not a surprise to hear the word gospel among Christians, is it? But I'm actually hearing it used as an adjective, not as a noun. I hear about gospel marriage and gospel friendship and gospel uh, compassion, maybe even gospel vacation. Or, uh, but gospel seems to be able to modify anything. It may be okay to talk about gospel this and gospel that. But my concern is, my concern in this use of the word gospel, is that uh, it's losing its meaning by def- describing something of a style instead of a specific content. And I hear about this church is a gospel church, and it seems to be describing its ethos, its style, not necessarily what they preach. And so I will insist a bit that gospel is a noun, and gospel refers to good news, and good news is an announcement of something that happened. So it's an objective declaration. It's not a feel, it's not an ethos, it's not a style, it's a declaration about something wonderful that happened. And that something wonderful is something that we are called on to believe, and that something wonderful will change our life if we believe it, and then we are then called to take that good news and to proclaim it to other people. Now, at some point in history, somewhere in the second century, Christians also began to use the word gospel to refer to the first four books of the New Testament. And that was something of a new use of that word. They began to refer to the gospel according to Matthew, and the gospel according to Mark, and the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. Now, we shorten that, and I do that all the time, but I'm going to try to break myself of the habit. We often say the gospel of Mark. But it's not the gospel of Mark, is it? It's the gospel, the one gospel, according to Mark. And so we're going to look at these four gospels, which are four records of the one gospel, which we remember is an announcement of something that happened. And we're going to look at those today in an overview. Now, um, who wrote these Gospels? Who wrote these Gospels? Well, strictly speaking, strictly speaking, they are anonymous. That is to say, in none of the Gospels does the author identify himself. However, as far back as we go in church history, 
as far back as we can go in the references that still exist, the church was always attributing these four writings to Matthew, who's also called Levi, Mark, John Mark, who was a young man who lived in Jerusalem, Luke, who was a physician who accompanied Paul, and John, who was an apostle. So, Historically, as far back as we can go, uh, those are the attributions. Now, you may have, you may have heard some uh, pop history about the Gospels, especially back when it was popular, what was that movie and that book, uh, The Da Vinci Code? Uh, you may have heard historical hogwash about Um, Well, there were lots of Gospels, and Constantine, in the 300s, he's the one that chose these four as the official ones. No. I say that's hogwash because uh, as early as early in the second or the middle of the second century, these four, and only these four, were recognized by the church as true accounts of Jesus Christ. So this was a very early process. This was in recognizing these as the Word of God and as the authoritative declaration of what the Gospel is. So when somebody tries to tell you that Constantine set the books of the New Testament, no, he did not. He didn't even address the issue. The Council of Nicaea did not address the issue. This was something that had started much, much earlier. Uh, So we receive these as the church has always done, as the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, the authorship doesn't really matter in the final analysis any more than the authorship of Samuel or Judges or Kings or Chronicles really matters. It's the Word of God to us. Now, why four Gospels? Why four Gospels? Well, the four Gospels give us four complementary perspectives on the Gospel. Four different perspectives, and they're addressed to different audiences. Uh, Matthew addressed a Jewish audience to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises about the Messiah. And therefore, if you look at Matthew, um, on page 895, Matthew begins, it begins this way, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see from the very first verse, he is emphasizing the lineage of Jesus. That it comes from David and it comes from Abraham. For whom would that be interesting? To a Jewish audience. And then when you go through Matthew, he is always saying... This happened in order to fulfill what was written by thus and and such prophet in the Old Testament. So he's showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He begins with Abraham. Mark addressed a Roman audience to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And he begins with Jesus' baptism. Mark's favorite adverb is, immediately. Mark is the shortest, and he's always in a hurry. He leaves out the prehistory. He leaves out the background. He just runs through and gets right to the ministry. And if you look at the first verse of Mark, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Doesn't mention David. Doesn't mention Abraham. He cuts right to the chase. He's the Son of God. And he begins with Jesus' baptism. Luke begins um, with Adam, and he is addressing a Gentile audience. And you might think, well, why does he begin with Adam? 
if he's addressing Gentiles. Um, he begins with Adam because he's presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. He's saying to the nations, to the Gentiles, he's saying, this is the perfect man, this is the Son of Man, and he is Lord of all. Both Matthew and Luke have genealogies of Jesus, and uh, Matthew goes back as far as Abraham, but Luke goes, bar- goes back as far as Adam. So he's not just relevant for a Jewish audience, he's relevant for everybody who is human. And then we have the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He goes back, not to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not to Abraham, not to Adam. He goes back to the beginning. And uh, this is how his Gospel starts. In the beginning. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever heard that before? Yes, the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of all things, in the beginning. And so he's taking us back all the way to the beginning. And he has a universal gospel, emphasizing that Jesus is God become human. God become human. And John helpfully helpfully tells us his purpose in writing his gospel. And he does this in John chapter 20. He tells us at the end why he wrote it. We would have figured it out, but he just wants to make sure we know why he wrote this book. And it's on page 1005, if you want to look at it in the Bibles that are available to you. John chapter 20, verse 30. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. No doubt about why he wrote it, right? He has a purpose. Why? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that upon believing we might have life in His name. That is really the purpose of all of the Gospels. Matthew wanted the Jews to believe. Mark wanted the Romans to believe. Luke wanted the Gentiles to believe. John wanted everyone to believe. That's the purpose. Now, let's look at the outline of what we call the synoptic Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call this, them the synoptic Gospels. This, um, this prefix, sin, uh, in, in English, either sin or sim, uh, we think about sympathy. It's to have the same pathos, so we feel together. Or what does a symphony do? A symphony has the same phonics, the same phonics, the same sounds. So we put this sin before words, and it says the same. So synoptic means those who see things from a similar perspective. That's why we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels, because they follow the same chronology. John blows it all up, and John, he, he, he has a whole other perspective on things that we're glad he does because it fills in many of the blanks that we don't have from the synoptics. But how do all of the Gospels proceed? Even John. How do all of them proceed? Basic outline of the Gospel. Somebody stops you and said, what did you study today in church? And you say, the four Gospels. And they say, you have ten seconds. Tell me what they're about. Well, here's what you could say. Birth, life, death, and resurrection. That's it. That's the outline of the Gospel. That's the report about what happened. Birth, life, death, resurrection. Luke takes it one step further and gives us the ascension as well. 
But that's the basic outline of all four of them. Now, let me just jump forward uh, to something that, that's very helpful, some verses that are very helpful in 1 Corinthians. Then we'll get back to the Gospels. But Paul gives us his outline of the Gospels. And it's on page 1,007, I'm sorry, that's my version, uh, it's on 1,063 in yours, 1,063, and it's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. And this is another helpful section. If somebody says, what's the gospel? Well, you could take them here, because here we have Paul's outline of the gospel. He says here, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There's Paul's outline. He says He died according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and He was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel message. That's a report about what happened. But notice that Paul doesn't leave it uninterpreted. He says at the same time why this happened. He says He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He died for what? He died for our sins. Now, in much of Paul's writings, he explains what that means, for our sins. It means in our place, as our substitute. So that is also part of the Gospel message. Not only what happened, but why it happened. And then he also explains that he was raised from the dead as the firstborn among the dead to conquer over death for us. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures to give us eternal life. And every gospel presentation must, must contain those things. It must contain the what and it must contain the why. And if you don't know what to say to somebody when they ask you what you believe, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and read 3 and 4. And then you got it. There's a brief explanation of the Gospel. Now, thinking about the synoptics, which are the synoptics? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A more detailed outline, and you have this in your notes as well, a more detailed outline would include Jesus' background. Mark doesn't say much about that, but uh, the, the others do. And then we have his ministry and teaching in Galilee. And recall that uh, the people of God in those days were divided between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And they were not contiguous. They were interrupted by Samaria in the middle. So Jesus, he did much of his ministry at the beginning in Galilee in the north. And we have his parables Uh, Many of those parables spoken in Galilee. And then we have, in the Gospel account, we have him moving southward. We have him generally moving towards Judea and moving eventually to Jerusalem. And then the Gospel account slows down. And we have the final week in Jerusalem that takes uh, an extensive amount of space in the Gospel account. Why? Because now we're going to understand finally what is the purpose of these three years of ministry, what is the culmination, and what does it mean for us. So it, Galilee, and then Judea, and then Jerusalem, and His last days, His death, and His resurrection. Another thing about the Gospels that is notorious is what's called 
the messianic secret. And if you've, if you've read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll, you'll pick up on this, this combination, this combination that seems sort of odd at first. And it's a combination, a curious combination, of Jesus revealing himself and at the same time concealing his identity. Uh, revealing himself and concealing his identity. And we could use any of the Gospels to show that, but let's just look at the Gospel of Mark to, to, to see how he did this. Mark chapter 1, for example, verses 33 to 35, it says, The whole city was gathered together at the door. That's on page 928. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Everything's going great, right? And then it says, next verse, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. So, he's the talk of the town. The whole town's there. And he responds by getting up early and skipping town and leaving and going somewhere else. Uh, We could think about the miracles that he did. Also in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 40, a leper or somebody with a skin disease came to him, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And we see this time and time again. He does a miracle, oftentimes of healing, and then he says, be quiet, don't tell anyone. Now we can appreciate how difficult that would be, right? The guy's leprous, and then he comes back to his family and says, hey, I'm okay. Or he was blind, and now he's no longer blind. Or he couldn't walk, and now he can walk. We can understand the difficulty of that command, but he constantly is saying, don't tell anything to anybody. And they don't listen to him. They they tell everybody uh, what he did. And we also see that he used parables. He used parables. Now, parables are a double-edged sort of sword. Oftentimes you'll hear, hear people say, well, he used parables so that people can understand. Sort of. But when he explained why he used parables, he said, I use parables so that people don't understand. In chapter 4 of, uh, of Mark, we find this parable. And in verse, uh, it's the parable of the sower. And he just tells this story, this, this parable about parables, by the way. And he talks about the seed and the four different types of soil and what happens with the seed and so on. And then he just, that's it. That's the end of the message. And then with his disciples in verse 10, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. So they didn't get it. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. A curious way of teaching, isn't it? He uses simple language. He uses earthy illustrations so that they could understand about seeds and soil and birds and so on. But then he doesn't give them the key to understand. But he just gives the key to understand to his disciples in private. A curious way of teaching, isn't it? He also held off 
telling his disciples what was going to happen to him. If you look at chapter 8, Mark has 16 chapters, and now we're all the way halfway through. We're at chapter 8, and finally, finally he tells his disciples what's going to happen to him. Chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he says, And he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, finally, they've been following him all this time, and finally, he says, this is what's going to happen. He kept it even from his disciples. And then we have to go two more chapters until he interprets it, until he tells why he was going to die. So you go to chapter 10, verse 45, and finally we have the meaning of why he's going to die. And here we're most of the way through through Mark. Verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment for many. So finally we have what's going to happen, and in chapter 10, towards the end of it, we finally have why he was going to do this. And then, another curious procedure is how he would deflect questions about his identity. People would come and say, Who are you? A good question, right? And there were these these different ideas circulating, and some of the ideas were, were mistaken. You would think he would want to correct those ideas as soon as he could. But he tended to deflect the direct questions. Mark chapter 11, for example, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem... And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Point blank question. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We're in chapter 11, folks, of 16 chapters. And here he's still doing this revealing and concealing at the same time. Now, why would he do this? Well, a few reasons that jump out in the Gospels. And uh, the first one is this. Jesus knew that his work would provoke opposition that would end in his death. He knew that from the beginning. He knew that from the beginning of the beginning. From all eternity, he knew that. And he had his timetable that he was going to execute. He was not going to submit himself to their timetable. He was going to execute his timetable. Now, the Gospel of John is the clearest about this. Ten times in the Gospel of John, it talks about, Jesus talks about, my hour, my hour. And uh, he says, and you have the verses in your notes, he says in chapter 2, Verse 4, chapter 7, verse 6, 8 and 30, chapter 8, 20. Let's look at just one of these. We'll look at the first one. John chapter 2, verse 4. The first time he says this. 
verse 24. He says, But Jesus on His part did not entrust... I'm sorry, that wrong verse. 2.4, not 24. It says, And Jesus said to her, He's speaking to His mother who wants to get Him involved in the problem of the running out of wine. He says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with Me? My hour has not yet come. And then he says it four more times. My hour has not yet come. 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 It's not until chapter 11 of John, about halfway through, or chapter 12 rather. Well, let's look at that because that's a, that's a, a, a pivot in the Gospel of John. Chapter 12, verse 23. It says, and Jesus answered them. Well, let's back up a little bit. There were some... They went up to the feast in Jerusalem, and there were some Greeks, some Gentiles there. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, that's verse 21, and asked him, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come, the hour has come, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then from there on, uh, Jesus says four more times, He speaks of His hour, and He says, The hour's here. The hour's here, the hour's here, the hour's here. He's in charge. So that's why he was revealing and concealing according to his timetable. Another reason was this. He wanted to establish reliable witnesses. Who were the ones who first declared that he was the, the Son of God? Demons. Now, if you're in, in a, a trial and you want to call witnesses to uh, testify on your behalf, would you invoke demon-possessed people so that the demons could say all about you? No. So he wanted to establish his own witnesses, and so he was always shutting the demons up, even though they were declaring the truth. They were declaring the truth, but he was not allowing them to testify. He wanted to establish reliable witnesses based on what he was doing. The Father working through him. And that's what Jesus said in in John uh, chapter 5. He says, if you don't believe me, believe the Father, because the Father is the one who's doing these these works through me. That's another reason. The other reason is this. He wanted to encourage faith in His hearers. He wanted to call forth faith in His hearers. How did He end many of His parables? He ended many of His parables. His closing line was simply, He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. End of sermon. So what did he do? He gave them some. He gave them part. And he said, listen carefully. Work on this. Figure it out. Try to hear this if you have ears to hear. And he left the ball in the court of the hearers to provoke faith in them. And the final reason we could identify is this. Jesus knew that this faith that He was calling forth from His disciples or from His hearers is a gift of God. And so He wasn't trying to make this happen. He realized that if they were going to have ears to hear, if they were going to respond, if they were going to believe, it would only be because God had granted that to them as a gift. Matthew chapter 11, it's on page 905. Matthew chapter 11 
verse 25, he says, it says, at this, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So on the one hand, he says, if you have ears to hear, hear. And on the other hand, he says, if you're able to hear, it's because it's a gift of God. Because God has been gracious to you. And He has given you ears to hear. And so He's throwing it back into our court and saying, what are you going to do with what I have said? Now, some people get disturbed about this and they say, well, if it's a gift of God, there's nothing I can do about it. But let's keep reading right after He says this. Right after He says, it's a gift of God. Verse 28 says, Come to Me. Come to Me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Apparently Jesus had no theological or philosophical problem with this. Of saying, it's a gift of God, therefore you humans, come. Come and receive. Come and rest. Come and believe. Well, belief is exactly the right response, isn't it? When we're told something about the past. There's nothing that you can do other than believe or disbelieve when a declaration of fact has been made about the past. Now, I can say, you know, Mexico beat Germany in the opener of the World Cup. And you can think that that is so shocking... <laughs> that you're going to disbelieve it. Or you can investigate and you can say, wow, hard to believe, but that really happened. Amazing. I know that the United States isn't all interested in this, but maybe a bad illustration, but it's one that's close to my heart. But you can either believe it or disbelieve it. You can't say, okay, I'll do that. Do what? There's nothing to do. If I tell you that that Jesus was born, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus ascended, that Jesus reigns, what can you do with that? You can either believe it or you cannot believe it. Well, it's been declared to us today. The Gospel has been declared to us today, so now, appropriately, the ball is in our court. Or I should say, more individually, the ball is in my court, the ball is in your court. What are you going to do with this? And that's the invitation. That is the exhortation. Come. Come and believe. Believe that God became a man and was born as one of us. Believe that that God-man lived as the perfect man as we ought to and fail to. Believe that that perfect man was nailed to a cross and... On that cross, He received and paid for the sins of all who will believe in Him. Believe that 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 man who died and was verifiably dead, that He rose from the dead physically, bodily on the third day and was seen by many. 
and believe that that same man, God, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God and will give life to any who will believe in Him. Believe and live. That's why the Gospel's here. That's what the good news is all about. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for good news. Oh, how we need good news in our world. We fear oftentimes to read or to watch the news because it's so distressing and depressing. We need good news, oh God, and thank You that we have good news that's eternal, that's always present for us. That Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose and reigns. And I pray for each one of us that we believe that good news and that believing we would have life in His name. And we pray in His name. Amen.